0: reasons for studying studying the Bible and attending our ladies' Bible study faithfully. Number one is that dusty Bibles lead to dirty lives. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, avoiding the sun can be hazardous to your health. Number three, forbidden fruits creates many jams. Number five, if you can't sleep, don't count sheep. Talk to the shepherd. Good idea. Number six, don't wait for the hearse to take you to church. (laughs) (laughs) Number seven, looking at the way some people live, they ought to obtain eternal fire insurance soon. Number eight, it is unlikely there'll be a reduction in the wages of sin nine, this is a CH dash dash CH. What's missing? Ten, running low on faith, stop in for a fill up. Eleven, if you don't like the way you were born, try being born again. <laughs> <laughs> Number twelve, how will you spend eternity? Smoking or non-smoking?
1: <laughs>
0: um, Welcome, ladies, to a new semester of Insight for Women Lakeside Ladies Bible Study. This semester, and five lessons into next semester, we will be studying the book of Acts. In one sense, Acts is the most important book in the New Testament. The simple truth is that, that without it, we would have known very little about the early church except what we learned from Paul's letters. Although we usually speak of the Acts of the Apostles, the book does not give an exhaustive account of the Acts of the Apostles. It is only about Peter that the book gives any real information and after chapter 12 the book moves to Saul whom we know as Paul. In the Greek There is no the before Acts. The correct title would be Acts of Apostolic Men. John MacArthur says a more accurate description is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. It was the sovereign directing, controlling, and empowering of the Holy Spirit that strengthened church and caused it to grow in numbers, power, and influence. Luke has been held from the earliest times to be its author. It is the second letter he wrote to Theophilus, which possibly might not have been his real name, which Luke did not use for safety's sake. In Luke 1-3, he calls Theophilus most excellent, which at that time would mean a governor or someone of high office in the service of the Roman government. We can only guess who he was. Theophilus means lover of God. About Luke himself, we really know very little. There are only three references to him in the New Testament and what we learn from Acts. In Colossians 4.14, we learn he is a beloved physician. In Philemon 24, we learn he is a fellow worker with Paul. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, we learn he was with Paul during his second and last imprisonment in Rome. We can deduce that Luke was a Gentile from Colossians 4, 10, and 11, where Paul lists men of the circumcision, meaning Jews, and does not include Luke, whom he mentions in verse 14. He is the only Gentile author in scripture. Beginning with Jesus' ascension through the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, to Paul's preaching at Rome, Acts chronicles the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church and also records the mounting opposition to the gospel. For the first 15 chapters, Luke is writing about things for which he has no personal knowledge. Luke himself was not an eyewitness to the events about which uh, Jesus accomplished during his earthly ministry, nor about which Jesus accomplished through the early church. But Luke was an accurate historian and meticulous researcher and the sources from which an historian draws his information is all all important. So where then did Luke get his facts? In Luke 1, one through four, Luke says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Luke drew on written sources. In Acts 15:23 through29, the Jerusalem Council issued a written decree to counter false teaching that had been going on in the church. In 23, 26 through 30, a letter written by the commander of the guard gives an account of how a plot to kill Paul was thwarted. There were also church records and interviews with eyewitnesses and key witnesses to those things he himself had not seen, such as Peter, John, and others in the Jerusalem church. Luke was Paul's close friend, traveling companion and personal physician. When they first came to Caesarea, they stayed with Philip the Evangelist. Philip was the first missionary named in scripture and the first one in the Bible to be called an Evangelist. He had an extensive ministry and was one of the seven chosen, including Stephen, to have oversight, caring for the widows of Greek Jews in the poor Christian community. Philip was there when Stephen was stoned, as was Paul, who at that time was Saul, the persecutor of the way. Philip had four virgin daughters. They were prophetesses, and the fact that they were virgins may indicate that they had been called by God for special ministry. The early church regarded these women as important sources of information in the early years of the church. So Luke had wonderful testimony to draw upon while he was with Paul during Paul's two years of imprisonment at Caesarea. And his friendship with Paul would no doubt give him access to all the great men of the churches and their stories would be at his disposal. After chapter 15, his use of the personal pronouns we and us indicates that Luke was an eyewitness to many of the events he recorded. Some believe he wrote Acts after the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. More likely, it was circa A.D. 60 to 62, before the end of Paul's first imprisonment. It would make no sense for him to have written Acts after that and not included the outcome of Paul's trial, his subsequent ministry, his second imprisonment, and his death nor did he include the persecution of Christians by Nero in A.D. 64 and the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. There is frequent use of the Old Testament and many transitions from the ministry of Jesus to the apostles, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from Israel as God's witness nation to the Church, composed of both Jews and Gentiles as God's witness people. The book of Hebrews gives the theology of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and Acts gives the practical working in the life of the church. In his gospel, when Luke tells Theopolis in chapter one, verse three, that having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, he was writing about Jesus' earthly ministry. He is now continuing in Acts to write it out in consecutive order, noting what Jesus accomplished through the early church. The opening sentences of Acts are an expansion and explanation of the closing words of the Gospel of Luke. In Acts, we have a continuation of the history of the church after Christ's ascension. Acts, as a sequel to Luke, gives an illustration of the power and working of the gospel when preached among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. It is a book of beginnings, a history of the founding of churches, the initial steps in the formation of the Christian society in the different places visited by the apostles. Acts is the first work of church history ever penned and provides information about the first three decades of the church's existence, material found nowhere else in the New Testament. Luke emphasizes that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's long-awaited Messiah, shows the gospel is offered to all men, not just the Jewish people, and stresses the work of the Holy Spirit who is mentioned more than 50 times. All through the book, we see the ever-present, all-controlling power of the ever-living Savior. He is working to spread His truth abroad among men by His Spirit and through the instrument of His Apostles. The key to the contents of the book is in Acts 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And even to the remotest part of the earth. In order to fully understand Acts, it is necessary to have sufficient knowledge of geography, manners of the times and people referred to, and with the leading historical events. Also, of the power of the Roman government, the nature and names of the public offices they established, and the distinctions between them. What was the disposition and political opinions of the unconverted Jewish nation prevalent among the Christianized peoples? What makes Bible study so interesting is that we learn about those issues and how they affected the people and the things we are learning about. Chapters 1 through 12 describes the first 12 years of the Christian church. It contains the history of the extension and planting of the church among the Jews by the ministry of Peter. Peter is a very interesting apostle. (coughs) His name was Simon until the Lord changed it to Cephas, an Aramaic name corresponding to the Greek Petros, which means rock or small stone. The name Peter gradually displaces the old name Simon, though as a rule, the Lord himself uses the name Simon when addressing him. Peter was a Galilean. They had a reputation for independence and lots of energy. They were more straightforward and transparent than their southern brethren and were noted for being blunt, impetuous, headstrong, and simple. Peter was also courageous and faithful to his master. Galileans spoke a peculiar dialect which could easily be picked up and actually betrayed him when he was denying Christ. He was married and he had a mother-in-law. That would be Matthew 8.14 and 1 Corinthians 9.5. Peter was clearly the leader among Christ's apostles, as we will see in Acts. He was always named first in every list of the apostles and was the spokesman for the 12, speaking their thoughts and questions as well as his own. He was, however, not above the others, although the Lord clearly singled him out for special lessons throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 16, 13 21, the Lord asks his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? In verse 16, Simon Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus told him, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus goes on to call him Peter and tell him that he will be the rock on which his church will be built and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Christ had given Peter much authority to build his church, and Peter does just that. Which doesn't mean Peter is the church's foundation. Christ alone is both foundation and the head of the church never make the mistake of thinking that he gave that role to Peter. Peter did get in trouble at times. A few examples, John 13, 4, 9 describes Jesus humbling himself to wash the feet of his disciples. Peter took exception to this and said, never shall you wash my feet, at which point Jesus said to him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. John 18.10 describes Peter at the time of Jesus' arrest, cutting off the ear of the high priest's slave. Jesus told him, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? In Matthew 26.35, Peter, as well as the other disciples, is insisting he would never deny Christ. And Jesus tells him that before the rooster crows, he would deny him three times. That's exactly what happened. Paul rebukes Peter to his face in Galatians 2.11. Peter, whose ministry was to the Jews, had withdrawn from Gentile believers to be with the Judaizers, who said in order to be saved, one needed to be circumcised. Now, Peter knew that that was wrong, and by fellowshipping with them, gave the impression he supported them. Paul came down hard on him. Pastor Krelap calls the disciples the defective dozen. So you see ladies, there is hope for us. (laughs) Paul is another fascinating person. He was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. His Hebrew name was Saul. He was a Pharisee and very well educated. He was a Roman citizen, which he inherited from his father. Nearly, Nearly all the original materials for the life of Paul are contained in Acts and in the Pauline epistles. Paul was zealous in persecuting Christians and hunting them down where he could. Paul, then Saul, was in hearty agreement of the stoning of Stephen, which was an act of mob rule, not a formal execution, and that's Acts 8.1. Acts, in chapter 9, describes him being confronted by Christ and his conversion to Christianity. How great is our God. Our God turned Saul's zeal and passion to work for his cause and turned the Christian-hating Saul into Paul, the apostle of Christ who ministered to, of all people, Gentiles. Mm. And so Acts chapter 13 to 21 describes Paul's missionary journeys, giving the history of the extension and planting of the church among the Gentiles. Chapters 21 through 28 describes Paul's trials in Jerusalem and Caesarea and his journey to Rome. The events which led to his imprisonment are described and could be entitled from Antioch to Rome. Following our study of the book of Acts, we will move to the Old Testament book of Esther, a Jewess who became queen to King Ahasuerus and whom God used to preserve his people from being annihilated. Esther and Ruth, the only two books in the Bible named for women. Then we will continue with the Old Testament book of Joel, Joel the prophet, whose name means the Lord is God, is referred to only once in the New Testament in Acts 21, 16 through 21. Joel brings the message of God's judgment on the nation, primarily Judah, the southern kingdom. Finally, we will study the New Testament book of Jude, 25 verses in one chapter. The little book of Jude is authored by Jude, generally believed to be Christ's half-brother. John MacArthur says this book could be called The Acts of the Apostates. It parallels parallels 2 Peter, which anticipates the coming of false teachers. In Jude, they have arrived. In closing, I'd like to read a prayer from a little book called The Valley of Vision. I hope it encourages you to be faithful in attending our Bible study and putting forth your best effort to learn and grow under God's word. It's pretty. It's called a minister's Bible. O God of truth, I thank thee for the holy scriptures, their precepts, promises, directions, light. In them may I learn more of Christ, be enabled to retain His truth, and have grace to follow it. Help me to lift, lift up the gates of my soul, that he may come in. And show me himself when I search the scriptures, for I have no lines to fathom its depths, no wings to soar its heights. By his aid, may I be enabled to explore all its truths, love them with all my heart, embrace them with all my power, and graft them into my life. Bless to my soul, all grains of truth garnered from thy word, May they take deep root, be refreshed by heavenly dew, be ripened by heavenly rays, be harvested to my joy in thy praise. Help me to gain profit by what I read as treasure beyond all treasure, a fountain which can replenish my dry heart. Its waters flowing through me as a perennial river are drawn by the Holy Spirit. Enable me to distill from its pages faithful prayer that grasps the arm of thine omnipotence, achieves wonders, obtains blessings, and draws down the streams of mercy. From it, show me how my words have often been unfaithful to thee, injurious to my fellow man, empty of grace, full of folly, dishonoring to my calling. Then write thou thine own words upon my heart and inscribe them on my lips. So shall all glory be to thee, in my reading of thy word amen thank you ladies